Well, last week we ventured into reasons that people leave God and the church. You're thinking, well, why are you talking to us about that? <laughs> We're here. Well, because I think it behooves us to understand, to empathize, to listen, and to maybe not fall prey to some of these things as well. Something to think about. Uh, the first three that we talked about last week were this. Political affiliation is fused with Christianity. Number two, we say that none of the people in church are my kind of people. And number three is that Christianity is about faith, and I deal with facts and science. These are three reasons that people will often leave God or the church, and if you weren't here last week, you're free to listen to that message that is uh, on our podcast. So today, I want to address three more reasons. So here is number four. It's that the church is not improving the community. It's irrelevant. The church is not improving the community. It is irrelevant. You know, many people drop out of the church because they view the enterprise of religion as a business and having little to do with improving the community around them. Whatever is done seems to be done for their own publicity, speaking of the church, and getting more members. You know, you have building uh, million-dollar facilities while people go hungry, right? Sermons are answering questions that nobody is asking, right? I mean, it just seems, in short, that the church is too self-interested and not looking at life outside and really improving the community. So I ask you, that's what people say, has the church been guilty of this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, not everyone, but we see this to a large degree. You know, even in the early history of our church, as I viewed the community, I've been a pastor here for over 30 years, there seemed to be little engagement with the schools and the city government here. Churches in Springfield and the civic authorities and establishments seem to have very little engagement with one another because there was a lack of trust on both sides. Now, obviously, I'm talking generalities. I can't speak of everyone, but it seemed to be the case in, uh, in many instances. Now, in my mind, there seemed to be a shift about 15 years ago. Uh, some churches, and there are, there are multiple reasons for this, but it seemed like some churches were forging out in front and serving without trying to twist a political arm. And then civic leaders seemed to be just a little bit more open to the faith community, to what we have now is, I think, a, a much better relationship and camaraderie with civic leaders and faith leaders. But even still, 
there is a growing disconnect between younger adults and the church. And why is that? There's one theory, and I not only share this, but I know of others who think this same way, so I'm not completely out in left field here. It seems that, especially the conservative arm of the church, is silent on matters that youth really care about. For instance, race relations, ministering to the poor. Now, these are two causes that typically are associated with, you know, liberal establishments. And in some circles, churches who minister in these ways are, you know, called trafficking in the the social gospel, which is meant to be a denunciation. And then on the right, you know, you have more conservative churches that are just about a man loving a woman. That's what marriage is. And then being pro-life, those are the chief causes. But they reject the things that are on the left, those two items that I mentioned. Don't get involved with the social causes. So here's some things I want to just throw out to you and for you to consider. Number one. Since when does a political ideology dictate how a church should operate? Next, isn't the church supposed to follow the instruction of Scripture? What if I told you this? That there are several times more Bible verses on feeding the poor and treating fairly those of another race than on homosexuality and taking the life of a newborn. That is true. Over 300 Bible passages deal with the poor, loving other races. So why can't we as a church champion all four of those causes? Right? I'm not saying neglect the ones on the right. I'm saying embrace all four, instead of ignoring the preponderance of biblical evidence. This point is about relevance. That's a pretty slippery word. Uh, There are those who think that relevance is uh, having a mass appeal to the populace. I don't think so. What I mean by that word is that the church contributes to human flourishing In other words, it benefits the community around us. I mean, if if CCC were blown up today, would Springfield miss us? Would it matter to the community? If the evangelical churches went off the face of the map in Springfield, would, would Springfield notice? Would the community? I like to think they would. I want to submit that race and loving the poor is not an issue I invented. It is a biblical issue. In fact, it's the way of Jesus. There's a story of Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. You remember the story. We often refer to it as Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Now, ask yourself this. Why would the gospel writer include that this woman was a Samaritan. Why would you include that? See, I think he included it because he wanted to show that Jesus was loving, kind, gave value 
to this woman who was an outcast Samaritan. The Samaritans were considered the half-breeds, the despised people in the society. And he did not allow her race to get in the way of loving her and speaking truth to her. I don't think Jesus was too concerned about whether he lived in a red or a blue state. Because Jesus dealt with her multiple sex partners. He addressed it. The passage tells us Jesus said to her, go call your husband to come here. The woman answered him and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. Jesus was relevant because he was operating from a biblical ethic, not a cultural or political one that tends to ignore one to address another. And I would suggest that when we operate with those kinds, a biblical ethic, we are beneficial to ourselves individually and to the community. So may we follow the way of Jesus, right? I was contacted this week about being a part of a program and have our church be a part of a program to help inner city churches develop a mental health initiative run by a Christian counseling group that would help churches train their own members. They do this with a kind of online training that costs about $2,500 a year, but they're offering it now to help with the inner city churches for $50. So they're saying, why can't we partner with other churches and help them you know, advertise it, promote it, and fund it to equip their people to deal with a very real issue, which is improving the mental health of our poverty-stricken churches. It's needed. It's practical. And I think it's certainly relevant. Now, more details will come, but this is one way we can help those right in our own backyard. I'm thankful that God is putting those opportunities before us. So, the church is irrelevant. That's the, uh, that's the charge. And I'd have to say, sometimes it doesn't have to be that way, and that's certainly not Jesus. Secondly, or actually this would be fifthly if you're doing the whole, whole group, the church spews hate. It's narrow-minded, filled with hypocrites. Now's not the time to give an amen. This is a, this is a common criticism of church. We'd have to admit that religion, particularly Christianity, seems to be a toxic brand. It has been written off as authoritarian. Many think it's largely concerned with stopping anyone from having fun. That's our job. And no claim that it spews hate, filled with hypocrites who are narrow-minded. And this description defines, or, or I should say, describes the experience of many people within the church. Not everyone, but we'd have to say churches have been narrow. 
often ignore their own issues and therefore demonstrate hypocrisy. The stories abound. And you know what? I'd love to give you illustrations of other churches so that I can distance myself from that perspective and hypocrisy. However, I'd have to admit, we've been a part of the problem. I've been a part of the problem. Now, perhaps not fully conscious of how we were coming off, but nevertheless still offensive. Now, I'd have to add that there are some excellent and loving churches are deemed offensive even though they're not, just because the message is offensive, not their manner. That's, however, not always the case. Sometimes it is the manner. For instance, years ago, there was a couple on our worship team that was found on Facebook, a picture, where they were in Harry Potter garb at some children's event. Some saw the photo and became unglued and started railing about demonic influence and a bad look for our church and worship team. And they wanted to have the couple confronted. Now, I made a moderate objection, but in the end, had to call our worship leadership to talk to the people. The couple ended up leaving CCC after being deeply hurt. The worst motives were assumed from one picture. Now, I tell you that story not because it's about the leaders. It's about a pastor who caved. Here we are at church. The champions, grace, unity, and yet I allowed a presumption to dictate. And I did the cowardly thing instead of standing up for what was right. I eventually called the couple, apologized for my actions. They graciously forgave, and we continued to stay in contact. The point is quick judgments based on a cultural moray and not a biblical one is played out a thousand times across the church landscape. And I think it's sickening. When adherence to a regulation that has nothing to do with a scriptural injunction and the importance of the relationship with the brother or sister are put on the back burner, the, the relationship is put on the back burner, then we become part of the problem. You know, there's a story of Jesus who's walking with his disciples through a field. And they're going through this grain field. And we read this. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never heard what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So David entered the tabernacle court, requested the consecrated bread, which was restricted 
by Mosaic ceremonial law to be eaten by the priests, and he gave some to his men. Now, you have to notice from the story that God never condemned the action. And Jesus was showing the Pharisees that their narrow interpretation of the law blurred God's intention. The spirit of the law was not about keeping ceremonial regulations at all costs and ignoring human need. Wisdom has to be applied. The people mattered. David mattered. And his men mattered more than picking the heads of grain. Now remember, this is a ceremonial law, not associated with God's moral law, not a part of the Ten Commandments, not repeated in the New Testament. The Pharisees were using the regulation as a way to draw conclusions of the spiritual life of people and then heap upon them condemnation. See, some see Christians kind of this way, taking stances against certain what they deem sins, and they see nothing related to love and grace and the gospel. I mean, they are a bull in a china shop. I'd have to admit, sure, some of this is the fault of the people receiving the message because people see what they want to see. Sure, that's the case sometimes. But some of the problem rests with Christians who think love, loving people, showing empathy, that that means compromise unless I give people a piece of my mind. Some think it's our job to set people straight at every turn, pointing out their faults as if to do any less is cowardly. I just don't see Jesus doing this. Sure, he confronted, but he led with love. And I think that's how the church is to function. We, you know, we confront sin in our camp, but we double down on love. There's another interesting passage in, in John 8, where Jesus confronts the adulterous woman. She was sure of his love, and yet he dealt with her sin. Now, you remember the scene of the Pharisees, you know, wanting to throw stones at her. And Jesus, he protects her. He loves her. There was a clear distinction between the Pharisees who wanted to stone her and Jesus who gave her great value and protected her. He valued her as a person. And what does Jesus say? He wants the Pharisees to, hey, why don't you guys just hold up a second here. I want you to think about something. How about the guy who wants to stone her let the guy go first who says he doesn't have any sin. We'll start there. <laughs> Jesus is implying with a little self-reflection and humility, that rhetoric is greatly diminished. The fact is we've all sinned. We all have baggage. Let's remember that when we feel the need to confront somebody. I'm not saying don't confront but as Galatians 6 says, be very careful when you do it. Humble yourself when you do such a thing. Here's our last one for today. God did not help me in my time of need. You want to know a reason that many people seem like they fall off the church landscape, they forget about God? They think God's been silent. 
This is not so much an intellectual reason as it is an emotional, experiential one. Maybe a person prays for a family member who's sick. They pray for them to be healed. They not only aren't healed, they die. Perhaps a person asks God to to salvage the marriage and it gets worse and it ends in divorce. The hardship was not lifted. So the person concludes, God, no thanks, no help. They pray for God to do something and it fell on deaf ears. This is hard to deal with because you can't just give 20 facts, intellectual reasons to deal with an emotional one. I mean, the person feels abandoned. It's like, you know, when you make a hospital call or you go to a person that, you know, is laying in a hospital bed, you don't give them 20 reasons why you shouldn't feel sad. It's best to just keep your mouth shut and listen. Let them express their pain. Love is best expressed with the gift of listening. Reminds me of my father after he had one of his heart attacks. He died in 1993, and there was a pastor who made a call on him. My dad knew this guy. This guy was good for a sermon any minute, any day. And my dad knew if he walked in the room, that's probably what he was going to get. And he asked my dad, hey, Tracy, would you care if I shared with you? My dad says, yeah, I do. (laughs) I wish people were more open and like my dad and just said, you know what? I just really don't want to go there. We'll save ourselves a lot of rancor if we just (laughs) keep our mouths shut. (laughs) You know, it can be difficult to see a perspective bigger than our situation, our pain. Surely I think most people that have just an inch of humility can acknowledge that their experience does not define the church everywhere. That their experience does not define what God is like with everyone or it doesn't have, I don't have full comprehension of God. I mean, that's a pretty arrogant position to take that to say the church is this and then just give my experience. Well, that is your experience. It's kind of like saying, you know what, you know, I uh, dated a man or I dated a woman who was this way and then saying all women are like this, all men are like this. No, you could say the experience is this, but again, that's using rationality and that's difficult when a person has this emotional reaction. I get that. But for understanding for maybe how to deal with people disappointed with God. There's a story about Jesus in the Gospel of John. And he had a friend, Jesus did, who was sick. And this man who was sick had two sisters named Mary and Martha. Now, these two tell Jesus about their brother who is sick, and they urge Jesus to go to him so that he could be healed. And instead of going immediately to help his friend, Jesus stays where he's at for a couple days. And then finally, after a couple days, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, let's go to where my friend is. 
But the disciples say, no, we don't want to go in that town because we know there are Jews there and they want to kill you. And so it kind of reminds us that we have some decisions that no matter what we do, you're going to be condemned, right? And that was certainly the case there. But Jesus goes to where his friend was, and Martha scolds him for not being on time. Why? Because his friend Lazarus had died. He did not go when they thought he should have gone. When the other sister heard that Jesus was around, she goes to him and says this. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you would have just shown up when we told you. If you'd have just been here when we said we needed you, but you didn't show up, and now look at him. And the Jews piled on. They said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You could pretty much say everyone was disappointed in God. Everyone felt that the timing was off, that Jesus was too late Then Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, and says, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. I mean, it seems like there was some sovereign clock that Jesus was going to and not by the beck and call of every human need. But even more than that, there's a kind of a prism of circumstances that we look through when it comes to our life. I mean, we want healed. We want the money. We want the job. We want things to turn out our way. It's very human. I pray the same thing. We do that. We look primarily at life through this lens. And what that means is when we do this, the disappointment will certainly be a part of what we experience. Because on this earth, there is tragedy, there is hardship, there are trials, right? But God looks at our life through a different lens, through a lens of relationship and faith. I mean, how might a circumstance be used so that people can see the glory of God, so that they can be drawn to Jesus? And and Jesus knew that God was not deaf in this circumstance. He says, you always hear me. Could it be that God allows us to suffer, to see his glory in the valley? Could it be that God allows us to suffer because it's in that suffering? There is a a deep communion with him that is found in no other way. Even Jesus was brought to the brink when he uttered these words on the cross. Father, Why have you forsaken me? Our flesh desires 
an easier way. And yet, even though Jesus went to the brink, he still obeyed. He still honored the Father with his faith in that moment. And we have been the recipients of his obedience while he suffered on that cross. Consider another unseen gain in the midst of hardship. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India, suffered enormously in her life. She once wrote these words. I have noticed that when one who has not suffered draws near to one in pain, there is rarely much power to help. I wondered if I can be the same in the sphere of prayer. Does pain accepted and endured give some quality that would otherwise be lacking in prayer? What if every stroke of pain or hour of weariness or loneliness or any other trial of flesh or spirit could carry us a pulse beat nearer some other life, some life for which the ministry of prayer is needed? Would it not be worthwhile to suffer? 10,000 times, yes. And surely it must be so. For the further we are drawn into the fellowship of Calvary with our dear Lord, the more tender we are toward others. God never wastes his children's pain. If I could just leave you with this. Let us listen to those in pain. And perhaps our empathy can convey to them that they do not suffer alone. And by the grace of God, we realize that God is never late, but right on time with what we need. And that could be facing death, or that could be experiencing a miracle. Either way, God is there in that valley. That's the truth of it. That was the life of Jesus. Let's pray.